and his disciples followed him. How many, by the way, is Riverton your hometown? How many of you hometown folks? Awesome. Awesome. The rest of us, we've adopted it. And so let's move on. Verse two, and on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and, and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not and are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. I want you to see that. If you got in your Bible, what, did, what happened? They, they took offense at him. They took offense at him. Verse four, and Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own house. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And so this morning, as we look, we're going to look at, well, we've been in the book of Mark, which the whole purpose of the book of Mark, if you guys remember, is to answer what question? Who is Jesus? The whole book of Mark is posed, who is Jesus? And the climax of the book of Mark is where Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? See, it's important for us to understand who do we believe Jesus is, not who do they believe Jesus is, not who your parents said Jesus was, not who your grandparents said or what the church you went to when you grew up. It doesn't matter what they say Jesus, who do you say that Jesus is? That is of every bit importance. It's one of the most important questions that you can answer. And so the book of Mark has been going through, who is Jesus? There's a lot of people who have a lot of different opinions about who Jesus is today, isn't there? Well, that doesn't matter what your opinion about Jesus is. Who is Jesus really? And today, we're going to learn that a couple of things about who Jesus isn't. Okay, we're going to learn about who Jesus isn't. And number one, we're going to see that he's not simply a man. He's so much more than a man. He was the God-man, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, which means God with us. God entered human history, fully man and fully God, as the person of Jesus on a rescue mission for us. He's not simply a man. He's more than just that, but he is also fully man. He's not just a self-help recipe, okay? The Bible is not just a self-help book. It's not just a book on how to live good life. It's so much more than just a self-help recipe. And Jesus is certainly no pushover. He's not a Santa Claus type who just gives us whatever we want, even if it destroys us. And so here today, as we look at the passage on how Nazareth responds to Jesus, they had some misconceptions about who Jesus was really, and it put a bad taste in their mouth. And they rejected him because of that bad taste. Now let's, let's look here. The first thing we see, and they're outed about what they believe by Je about Jesus in this passage by the questions that they ask. And so we're going to kind of pull out three different questions that they asked, and it's going to show, it's going to betray what they believed about Jesus, okay? So they're asking questions, and the first thing they ask is, where did these, this man get these things and this wisdom? Where did he get these things and this wisdom? See, Jesus rolls into his hometown, and his hometown has some expectations for him, 
okay? They wanted a water tower with Jesus's name on it so they could put up road signs and say, Jesus is from Nazareth. They wanted to celebrate somebody who'd come. And so Jesus is starting to, to begin, to his ministry has begun and people are starting to get excited about this teacher and they're starting to see that, uh, that people are following him and crowds are following him. And they wanted a piece of that. They wanted a piece of that excitement. And see, they begin, if you look at that beginning passage, so he rolls in and he began to do what? He began to teach in the synagogue. He began to teach in the synagogue. And so they're asking the question, where did this man get these things, this wisdom? The first thing that we want to see about Jesus' teaching is that it is not, it is not just to make me feel good about myself or for me to be more confident or for me to have Jesus's, uh, like on a t-shirt. You ever seen the t-shirt, Jesus is my homeboy? Okay, in a sense, okay, maybe he's your homeboy, but in a sense, he's kind of the savior of the world. And so maybe he's not just your homeboy. Maybe there's some gravity. Maybe it's not just about him being alongside us in our accomplishments and how we do life, but maybe it's so much more about us coming alongside him who is working this rescue mission. And so they had an inaccurate view of Jesus's teachings because they began to think in terms of me. Anybody else struggle with that kind of thinking? I call it me-centered thinking. Everybody raise your hand. We're all guilty of me-centered thinking. How many of you think that you're the hero in your story? You're like, I am the main character here, Shane. You don't understand. It is all about me. Well, I want you to turn to Luke 4. If you got your, your or sorry, Luke, uh, yeah, Luke 4, 18. And so Jesus rolls into Nazareth. He unrolls the scroll of Isaiah and he begins to read about why he's there and they misunderstand his teaching and they actually don't like the taste of his, his, of his teaching because it's not about them and about what they're doing and about what they want, but instead he starts here. The spirit of the Lord is upon who? Me. Who's he talking about? Himself, Jesus, okay. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Do you read you anywhere in there? Okay, let's keep going. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And so the first thing that we see in those passages is, is he talking about us? Are we the main character? And so Jesus rolls into Nazareth and he's already saying, Guys, it's about me. I'm Emmanuel. I'm the Savior. I'm about to do something big. And they're thinking, yeah, but what are you going to do for me? You see the difference? How many of us roll into church and we're like, what am I going to get today? What's in it for me, right? And Jesus then unrolls the scroll of Isaiah and he says, it's not about you. It's about him. It's about Jesus and so they misunderstood or they had an inaccurate view of his teaching. They thought he was going to come in self-help and say, you Nazarene, you're amazing. You raised me. And, and now Nazarene, you're Nazareth, you're the best small town on the top 10 list. You're number one. And he's like, no, no, it's not about you. And he began to say to them, so he unrolls that, that scripture that we just read, the book of Isaiah, and he says, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So what is Jesus essentially saying? He's saying this, this prophecy in Isaiah is about who? It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. 
See, brothers and sisters, if we're going to have an accurate view of teaching, if we're going to have an accurate view about Scripture, we cannot have a me-centered view of reading Scripture. We, it, 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 it really destroys how we read Scripture. And when I think of uh, how Jesus told us to interpret the Bible, this is right exegesis, it's not to interpret it all about us or to make ourselves the hero in the story, but to make Jesus the hero of the story. I think about there was... Um, after the resurrection, there were two guys walking on a road to Emmaus. Have you heard this story in the Bible? And Jesus pulls them aside, and after a little bit of dialogue, he pulls them aside, and they don't realize that it's him, and he starts to teach them that all of the scriptures are about him. All of the scriptures tell us that it is about Jesus. Jesus himself said, the Old Testament from Genesis all the way to the book of Revelation is about who? It's about Jesus. And so if you're reading the Bible, you need to not read it as a self-help book or a how-to-do life, but it's a book about Jesus. And Jesus is the one who changes us from the inside out. We're not the heroes of our story. We don't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. Jesus' teaching was clearly centered on himself. By the way, this is kind of interesting. Did you know that Jesus is the only one who can rightly be self-centered? Isn't that cool? And nobody else has the right to be self-centered. Jesus does. Because for us to be centered on Jesus is the best thing for us. Luke 24, 27. In the beginning, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them, this is on the road to Emmaus, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. We are not the main character in God's story. You need to come to terms with that. But brothers and sisters. He lets us come alongside his eternal story, his glorious story of redemption and redeeming mankind. Well, let's look at teaching. If we know, it says, right, uh, so one of the questions they had, where did this man get these things, this wisdom? Well, we know that Jesus rolls out the book of scroll of Isaiah. So he clearly gets his ideas, his wisdom from God the Father, from the scriptures. That's why Christians were obsessed with the Bible. The clearest and best way to know good teaching is the Bible, is the scriptures. So good teaching has to be based on scripture. Brothers and sisters, I would say, uh, how do I say, we're in a state of starvation when it comes to Scripture in our culture. Would you agree? We have more access to the Bible than any other generation before us, but we have the lowest amount of literacy, Bible literacy is what I would call, than any other generation before us. Isn't that amazing? Is it because maybe we're a little too familiar? We're going to see that, that Nazareth was struggling with that. Well, let's ask 1 Timothy 1, 5 through 7. Paul's talking about what is the, the charge, the aim of good teaching. What is the aim of good teaching? The aim of our charge is love. Everybody say that with me. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these things have wandered away into vain discussions. Oh, that never happens today. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either of what they are saying or the things about which they make confident insertions. Guys, we live in the YouTube age. You guys can look up some of the most renowned world teachers today. You can also look up some of the 
catchiest false teachers of today, the most exciting of false teachers today. But I want you to see there in that verse, Paul says the, the aim or the charge of our teaching is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. It's not about sitting in these pews and getting good knowledge. Knowledge is good. But if it doesn't change your life and you spend a lifetime sitting in these pews and sitting under good teaching and it never changes your heart to love, there's a problem and you're wasting your time. Whoa, pastor, did you just say going to church can be a waste of time? I'm telling you that going to church can be a waste of time. If you don't have a right view of teaching and of scripture, 2 Timothy, again, Paul kind of comes to what is the purpose of Scripture? What is the purpose of good teaching? But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred things, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And there, here he says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. And here's the purpose for Scripture. Are you ready? It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. I'm going to pause there. How many of you love reproof and correction? You're like, sweet, I cannot wait for somebody to tell me that I'm wrong and that I need to adjust. If you came here like that, I want to give you a hug. You're amazing. I want to be like you when I grow up. But scripture is for reproof, it's for correction. And so if you're reading the Bible and it never tells you that you're headed in a wrong direction, you're not reading it right if you sit in on teaching and it never challenges you and you just sit and shake your head and say, amen, you're probably not viewing teaching right and they're probably not reading scripture then because it's challenging, isn't it? And for training in righteousness is what, what Paul says to Timothy, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Hold on, did you hear what it said? It didn't say equipped for church attendance. It said equipped for every good work every good work. This has to play out in your life. It has to. Good teaching has to play out in how you act Monday through Saturday and Sunday afternoon when you're rushing to the lunch. So an inaccurate view of teaching. And so Jesus unrolls the scroll. He begins to teach. He says it's, it's fulfilled in your, in your hearing. I want to just pull out another scripture really quick. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 2. Knowledge is good. We have more access to knowledge today than, again, any other generation. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Do all of you know things? Can we confidently say that some, all of us know something? This is yes, we know something. A lot of us like to tell others about what we know. You know what I'm saying? All right, but here's what Scripture says. This knowledge puffs up, but love which remember is the product of teaching. Our goal is that there would be love for, from teaching, but love builds up. See the difference there? Love, or sorry, puffs up, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up, okay? We could be the smartest church in the region and be completely separated from God, couldn't we? If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. I love that. That's kind of humbling, isn't it? You think you know something? You don't really know anything. And it's like, oh, you're right. But when we're honest with ourselves, there's so much more. Even as your pastor, guys, I never want to stop pursuing and learning and being taught by God. And it's hard sometimes. 
but right teaching as it was going to challenge Nazareth in their day. Jesus rolls the scroll and he begins to teach. And uh, the, the teaching has to affect our life. And, and I just want to use an example here in our culture. I coined this term, I heard it, and I just, uh, I, I think it's very accurate to a lot of our areas of life, this thing called sexual atheism. There's this thing called sexual atheism where we would live our lives as Christians and we would call ourselves as Christians, but our sexuality is not to be touched by God and his rule or his lordship. Is our culture living that way? Oh, man, so many Christians. And I saw that big time in college. Like, I want to be a believer. I want to go on mission trips, but I don't want to submit to, uh, I don't want to submit my sexuality or my sex life to Christ and to his law and to his governance. We live as these aspects of our life separated from God. God wants all of us. He wants to be Lord of our life, doesn't he? And so if there's a part of your life that you're like, don't touch that, God, this is him telling you right now, let go of that part of your life to him. How does our life reflect the teachings of Jesus? The next thing that Nazareth really struggled with was an inaccurate view of Jesus's mission. I love this picture. Have you guys ever heard of these guys that like jump out of helicopters to rescue people? That sounds terrible. Yes, there's, there's a future one right there maybe. I don't know. That sounds terrifying. Why would you jump out of a perfectly good helicopter? But it's to rescue somebody. And I think what a beautiful picture of what Jesus, his mission is. He jumped into the mess that is sinful creation, that is full of pain, that is full of sorrow. And he suffered and he felt those things fully because he was on a rescue mission to pull us out of the water and up into the helicopter, wasn't he? That's a hardcore view of Jesus. I love that, like paratrooper Jesus. I love that. But that's how hardcore, see, we have an inaccurate view of God's mission. And this came out in, in Nazareth when they said, how are these miracles performed by his, by his hands, these mighty works? What were they interested in from Jesus? Nazareth, what, what did they want most? They wanted some renown. They wanted him to come and heal all the sick. They wanted his power. They wanted everything that he could give them or that they had heard. I want you to go back to Luke 4. Back to Luke 4 and look at verse 18 again. It says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to, okay, now you can underline this. What was his mission? To proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim, what does it say? Liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the, the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed those who are oppressed. So what is Jesus's mission? What is Jesus's mission? He's using spiritual terms here, not just physically poor, but spiritually poor, right? We were sinful people in need of the Lord. And so Jesus came to proclaim the good news that, that those who are poor in spirit, if you remember the Beatitudes, right? Those who are poor in spirit, he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. We were all captives to what? our own sinful inclinations, weren't we? It's called sin nature. Everybody has it here. If you pinch your flesh really quick, make sure it's still there, right? We all had sinful inclinations. And so Jesus came to, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. Are we spiritually blind? Yes, we are, spiritually speaking. We cannot always see what God is doing. And so Jesus here, he's saying, he's saying my mission is for the lost, and we were once lost, weren't we? If you're here and you're a believer, you're not lost anymore, are you? 
You've been found, you've been rescued, you've been brought into the fold and into the family, but where is Jesus's heart still? For the lost, for the people who have not heard, for the people who have not seen, and for the people who are still poor in spirit. And so oftentimes, brothers and sisters, we build church on this idea of, man, we need to get better at being together and having good times and good fellowship, and we like to have entertaining moments. Is that Jesus's heart? I don't think it is. I think Jesus' heart is for the lost. The people that are not sitting here today are the heart of Jesus. That's who he is on his mission for. We've been found. Praise the Lord, amen? But if you're a believer here, Jesus' heart is for the lost. That is his mission. And so they wanted to create a club. Nazareth, here's Jesus, and they're like, oh man, we want to create an elite club. And Jesus comes and he says, no, that's not my heart. That's not why we gather. That's not what I want to accomplish. I am here not to just give you what you want, but to seek and save the lost. What if believers believe that if it meant sacrificing so that others could hear the gospel, if it meant plugging in and investing in the lost, what if we were willing to do that at cost, at a sacrifice? I think the church would blow up because that's what Jesus modeled for us. What if we were on the same mission as Jesus, to seek and save the lost, not to sure up the saved? Church, brothers and sisters, we cannot view it about us. It's about Jesus and his people. You will forever be unsatisfied with church if you only come to receive. Anybody been there before? Or you spent years attending church and you're like, I'm just bored. I'm just bored. I feel like I'm in a valley in my relationship with God. Here's my challenge to you. If you only ever come to receive, you will get bored. It's not satisfying. God created you to receive from him so that you can give, so that you can pour out the good news of the gospel. You can be the witnesses to the whole world about his coming kingdom. And so if you want more of Jesus, you need to start pouring out more of Jesus. Because there's this sense that if he fills your cup and you don't start pouring up, he stops pouring. But if you want your cup to runneth over, you see what I'm saying? Then you need to be pouring out. You need to be pouring out. You want more of Jesus in your wife, in your life, and in your walk. You need to start pouring out for the lost. You need to be on mission with Jesus. In all the things I've shown you, this is Acts 20, 35, that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of Lord Jesus. This is Paul speaking. How he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. What if the church was a little less selfish? What if the church was a little less me-centered and a little bit more on mission with Christ? What would happen? People would get saved and this community would get changed. Brothers and sisters, I was praying about this and over the weeks, we've been talking about the issues in Riverton, and there's been meetings, and like, what can we do for the, for the needy, and for those that are going hungry, for those that don't have homes? And we've just been praying, and we've been thinking about what is going on in our community that they have needs, and we know their highest need is everybody needs Jesus, but ultimately, the best thing that we can do as a church is to be so obsessed with the mission of Jesus that it changes our community, right? It has to start with Jesus. We can have social programs until we're blue in the face, can't we? But Jesus said what? The poor will always be with you. The poor will always be with you. That's true. 
But man, if we pour into our walk with Jesus and we let that transform us to be on mission and live life on mission, does our community get changed? You better believe it. Because now you don't just serve people and hand them a cup of water. You serve them in the power of the Holy Spirit, which changes eternally. Cup of, cup of cold water is important, but if it's not in the name of Jesus, we're just another organization that is only delaying the inevitable. So we need to grow by giving. He who has more, he who has more given, he doesn't know what he, or, so Jesus oftentimes, there's this principle, he says this statement, and I've labored over it as many of you probably have in scripture, to he who has, have you heard this? more will be given. And to he who does not have, what he does have will be taken away from him. You guys labored over that? Like the phraseology of that just, but I've taken that to mean in my study that essentially he who has more of God and pours out that is going to get what? More of God. But to he who doesn't have and tries to do this life apart from God, those few things that we accomplish in our 80-year lifespan, 80 to 100 if you've you know, got good genes, those things will be taken away from us. We sang it, right? I don't want a legacy. I want Jesus. I want Jesus. And so growing by giving, and so here Nazareth labors with this idea that they didn't understand Jesus' mission. They wanted, they wanted to be Jesus' mission. Instead, Jesus was like, no, I'm here for those who need me. Your contentment at church is directly related, by the way, to your involvement in it. If we become a church that is interested only in serving ourselves, then we will decline and die. That's what's happening to the American church, isn't it? We're interested only in our Christian culture, only in our Christian music, only in our mega churches. Do you guys know, I heard this statistic, that all of our Christian music essentially comes from, all the top 100 songs come from essentially five mega churches, and that's it. All of our music comes from those five mega churches. What do I mean by that? We've become so obsessed with this like big church entertainment movement. We love to come and be entertained, but to go and die, Lord, I don't know if I'm interested in that. But Jesus said what? Pick up your cross and follow me. Church, are we ready to do that? Believers, are we ready to do that? Why is this uh, really, Jesus, <laughs> man, points this out to a head because he starts to share a story in Luke about two people. Two people in Luke, he points out two non-Israelite people that were healed in the ministry of Elijah. I want to read it for you. And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this verb, and this is in Luke, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did, heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. So they're like, Jesus, we want you to be our hometown hero. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Some of you need to hear that because you've been sharing with somebody close to you and they haven't been listening. And you felt like, man, you've been praying for them and you find that God's word is not acceptable a lot of times because it comes from you and you're too close to the situation. Anybody ever have that happen? In that scenario, I would tell you, brothers and sisters, I've felt that before with family members I've shared that have ignored me because they saw me grow up or they knew me too well. Pray for God to send somebody to them that's not you. That's the best thing that you can do in that situation. That was an aside. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in, the home, in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. Everybody say Elijah. When the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over the land, and Elijah, everybody say Elijah, 
was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in that time of the prophet Elisha. Everybody say Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. Why is it important? Why are these two people in Luke important? And why is this incredibly offensive to Nazareth? Because the only two people that were healed in those scenarios during that whole ministry of Elijah and Elisha were not Israelites. So Jesus is essentially saying, you weren't the people that I healed. I healed the people that were not you. That hurts. Why was Nazareth offended at what Jesus said? Because essentially he said, I didn't come for you. I came for those over there, the lost, the hurting, the poor. I didn't come. Man, that would hurt, wouldn't it? When they heard these things and all the synagogues were filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out. Why were they so mad? Because Jesus essentially said, I didn't come for you. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Well, you know you've preached a good sermon when they want to throw you off a cliff. I don't recommend anything. But passing through their midst, he went away. They didn't like the taste of Jesus's mission. You will be unlocked when you shift from what I can get from church to what I can give to the kingdom of Christ. The last thing I want to finish with, and this is an important thing as well, is an inaccurate view of Jesus. And so Nazareth had seen Jesus grow up. Nazareth had knew his family. And so they asked the question, isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary? Don't we know his brothers and sisters? Isn't he just a man? Isn't he just a good teacher? Isn't he just one of many religious options out there? Does this sound familiar? See, they tried to, they, there were efforts to belittle the importance of Jesus based on what? Their familiarity, their closeness to Jesus. How many of you have grown up in church? How many of you have read the Bible all the way through front to back several times? How many of you get to that place of exhaustion where you're just kind of like, you know, I kind of know it all. I'm glad you guys are laughing at that because I'm not there, but I am in danger sometimes of thinking I know it all. Anybody else in that danger? Where you hear the gospel and you're like, oh, I've heard that story about Jesus and the cross. That's old hat. I know about that. You ever shared the gospel with a Christian? I've done this a couple times. Like, I'm just excited to share the gospel with somebody in the community. And I start a conversation and I begin to share the gospel. They're like, oh, man, I know that. I don't need that. You don't need that? You don't need the gospel? If you're a Christian here, everybody, can we just agree? You need the gospel as much as you possibly can be reminded of the gospel. And if ever it stops glowing with hope, you're in danger of where Nazareth was. You're too familiar with the amazing and unique story of Jesus. It's interesting to me in our culture, the more educated we've become, the more apt to reject Jesus we have become as a culture. And if you, any of you have done any amount of study over the last 200 years of, I'm going to put quotes here, scholarship on who Jesus is, it's trash absolute trash. We began in the 18, 1985 with something called the Jesus Seminar. Have you ever heard of this? In the Jesus Seminar, a bunch of really educated men got together, 50 critical scholars and 100 laymen, and they used beads to vote on what they thought was true about Jesus based on nothing but their opinion. And I wish that I could laugh at that, but that Jesus Seminar has influenced scholarship in the Western church for the last hundred years. 
And this is where we get men in history like Thomas Jefferson that did what? Took a pen and went through and eliminated in the Bible all of the miraculous and said, here's the real Jesus. And the Jesus Seminar just came and said, this is historical Jesus, didn't do miracles. He was just a good teacher. See, it seems like the more educated we've become, the dumber we've become. We don't even use the education that we have. See, many of these were too familiar with Jesus. I think of the second son in the parable of the prodigal son. You guys heard that story, the parable of the prodigal son? The one son spends his father's inheritance and says, I want nothing to do with you, God, but then hits rock bottom and comes back. Did you know that story wasn't really about the prodigal son who came back, but it was about the second son? You guys remember what the second son did? He was ticked off that the first son came back and the father received him as a son again. And the second son was like, I've been here the whole time. I've done everything I was supposed to do. How come you're not celebrating me? Do you see how that applies, church? Nazareth wanted celebrated. His hometown wanted celebrated. I think a lot of times we as a church want celebrated. We don't want Jesus to sacrifice our celebration to go after the lost. You see what I'm saying, church? Familiarity breeds contempt, while rarity wins admiration. I don't use quotes very often, but I thought that was a good one. So familiarity breeds contempt, while rarity wins admiration. When we remember how separated from the Father we truly were under sin, it leads us to admiration, to praise, because it is a unique thing in all existence that we would be saved by a loving God, isn't it? So what were the consequences to these inaccurate views? Well, Luke tells us they were offended by him and literally tried to throw him off a cliff. Mark tells us in Mark 6, 5, that he was unable to do mighty works there, except heal a few. Are we, is the Western church there? Sometimes I wonder, are we unable to experience the mighty works of God because we're so focused on self? How many of you, when you're serving Jesus on mission, you've seen God do miraculous things? But when you're living for yourself, it's like there's blinders up and you don't see the mighty works of God. Why are we bored with God? Maybe it's because we're not looking. So what, what does that mean for you? Are you on God's mission or are you on yours? And it's important for us to continually adjust and correct our views of Jesus by reflecting on Scripture. So questions for small groups, are you on God's mission or are you on a different one? And what's the difference between the two? And how can you keep from getting too complacent in your walk with Jesus? How can you keep from getting too complacent in your walk with Jesus? We're going to have a time of communion, so I'll invite our elders up. I want you to bow your heads and consider these questions. I want you to think on whose mission are you on? Yeah, elders, go ahead and come on up. Lord Jesus, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. God, would you help us to adjust, to change We don't want to be people who come here just to receive, but God, we want to be people who come, see you, and are mobilized by you for the lost. God, whatever that looks like, maybe that means jumping in and serving. I pray that now, Holy Spirit, would you reveal to every individual here what it is you want them to do to practice their gifting in this body so that we could be a church of 100% participation. 
I'm just going to pray the big thing, God. Let it not be the 20-80 thing where 20% of the people are doing 80% of the ministry. But God, I pray, would you mobilize this church in your name, Jesus, 100% because your body was broken and because your blood was spilt for us. We rejoice at being able to get on your mission. And so God, I pray that over this church in Jesus' name. Amen. You are dismissed. Brothers and sisters, thank you for being here. If you need to talk to me, if you would like prayer, if you want to talk to some of our elders, they're here to pray with you as well. Um, You have a wonderful week. Go and live on mission.